This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome, you. Yes, you. You are listening to Literary Treks here on the Trek FM Network. We are the official Star Trek books and comics podcast of this network. And this is episode number 304. And with me, like, well, he always is, is Dan Gunther. Dan what are you up I'm, to? Yeah, sitting here on this lovely day, looking out my window at my blossoming apple tree, thinking about Star Trek novels. It, it's, it's a great day. And this is the highlight of that day. I, <laughs> I've never thought about looking at apple trees and doing Star Trek novels at the same time. It's, the, cool. it's the kind of groundbreaking things we're doing here on literary tracks <laughs> <laughs> that just reminded me when i was in college my first uh, couple years i was going to this uh, satellite campus and right outside the door of one of the doors of the building that we were in was an apple orchard and you could just walk right over and pick an apple mm. and eat it nice it was pretty cool yeah. Oh, that sounds. You can't great. say that about every college you go to, you know. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I wonder if they put that in the brochure. You know, if that's a big draw. <laughs> <They should. laughs> it's un- it's unfortunate they moved the campus then, so there's no more apple trees for them. Oh well. Enrollment drops off precipitously. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, well, you know, in today's show in the future, we are going to do book two of the. Voyager String Theory series. It's called Fusion, and it is by Kirsten Beyer. And I'm looking forward to reading. Well, I've already read it. I guess I'm looking forward to talking about it because Kirsten, this was her first novel. Very cool. You know, and and I've read all of her Star Trek full length novels, uh, except this one until now. Like you said, I have now read this novel. So yeah, it, it's it's nice to see where she got her start in Star Trek. There is a, a, a short story in the Voyager omnibus uh, that celebrated their anniversary a few years ago that I still haven't read that one yet. Uh, but yeah, it's it's nice to have completed all of her Star Trek novels, except for, of course, the one that's coming this fall, which I can't wait for. <laughs> 
Oh, I know. I'm so excited. It'll be her last, more than likely her last post-Voyager novel <laughs> as far as we yeah. know. So, you know, oh well. But speaking of, we had a poll on our Goodreads group. Yes, we have a Goodreads group for literary treks. If you are a member of this group, you had a chance to participate in this poll. And it asked you, which is your favorite post-series novel? Are your favorite novels the post-TNG novels that take place after Nemesis? Are they the post-DS9 novels, post-Voyager, or post-Enterprise? And we have the votes in at 39.4% post-TNG novels was number one. And tied for second are post-DS9 and post-Voyager with 27.3%. And then post-Enterprise in last place with a 6.1%. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, definitely post TNG, which I tell I'll tell you, I voted, I voted for post Voyager. I voted as well, and I voted for post DS9. And it was a tough choice. DS9 edged it out because they were the kind of trailblazers for me for the whole post series stuff, but Yeah. Honestly, it was tough between that, the post-TNG, and the post-Voyager ones as well. And I love the post-Enterprise ones as well. Like, I that makes me sad that it only got 6.1%. But, uh, yeah, hmm, that's too bad. Well, I think maybe one reason Enterprise didn't get as many is because there aren't that many post-Enterprise novels compared to the others. It's true. Maybe yeah. that has something to do with it. Those Rise of the Federation novels, though are excellent the romulan war one's not as much in my opinion so that that pulled it down a little bit for me you know it's funny you say that because every time i think of post enterprise novels i think rise of the federation i'm thinking everything after 2161 Mm, but i I shouldn't be i should be even thinking about like you're saying the romulan wars but for some reason in my mind i think of that as part of the series for some like the tv series even though i know it's not part of the series but i think of that 10 year period as being like the enterprise period and anything after that is post enterprise yeah it should have been part of the series but that's because it got cut short prematurely unfortunately yeah unfortunately oh well that's why we have the novels and the comics. And speaking of comics, we do have a comic that was suggested to us by Justin Ozer, who's a listener here on Trek FM, if you didn't know. And, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago or a couple episodes ago, we did a uh, celebrity series, Deep Space Nine comic that was written by Aaron Eisenberg. And Justin said, hey, there's another one out there by Mark Leonard. And so it's like, yeah, maybe we should do that one. So... We went into our closets and pulled out our issue from 1995 of Blood and Honor, written by Mark Leonard. So, pretty exciting, which I thought was interesting that he wrote a Deep Space Nine novel, because he wasn't ever in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, this was an interesting project that Malibu did when they had the license for Star Trek comics. And as far as I remember, they only had the license for Deep Space Nine comics and just for a very short period of time. And I love that they did this because I would not have thought of Mark Leonard writing a Deep Space Nine story either. But this comes out really well, I think. I think it's, I'm really glad that this was suggested because this was a lot of fun to read. And I don't know all the details behind it, but I'm sure he worked on the story idea and got the writing credit, but I really doubt that he sat there and wrote this whole story by himself because I can't imagine he was that familiar with Deep Space Nine 
to write a full story like this. I mean, maybe, but I seriously doubt that he watched it that much. I think he probably worked with writers at Malibu and came up with the story. I'd say that's probably a fairly fair assumption. <laughs> yeah. And just to point out also, this there was only two celebrity uh, series issues, the one with Aaron that we mentioned before and this one. And, uh, of course, both of these people have passed away. As a matter of fact, it was the next year that Mark Leonard passed away after this issue came out. Yeah, it's kind of it, it's interesting to realize that this was his last foray into the world of Star Trek and that it came so shortly before he passed away as well. Well, wow, I hadn't even thought about that. That's his last foray in Star Trek. So let's go into this here. And it starts off with a uh, runabout coming back from the Gamma Quadrant through the wormhole. And we have Dax, Bashir, and an ensign on the ship. And they're bringing back this artifact that has these mysterious energies and things coming from it. We're not sure what's going on, but it's really fascinating to them. And they want to bring it back to the space station. But then all of a sudden they get a call from Commander Cisco. He's not a captain yet, because this is what, probably second season, I think? Uh, season three, I would say, based on the com badge and Odo's uniform. Oh, that's right. The com badge. Yeah, that's the giveaway there, too. So uh, they're like, we have a medical emergency. So Bashir is beamed over and there is a lieutenant, Starfleet lieutenant, that has blood coming out of her nose and her uniform is ripped up. And then all of a sudden there's this Romulan that walks up and says, you know, we most certainly need your help with this and this unfortunate accident. And of course, they're like, you know, okay, who's this guy? And he is, his name is Jenik, and he's uh, an envoy of the Romulan government. And he's there to represent his people and the interest to the High Council of Bajor. And the reason he's there is because what happened is that as they board Deep Space Nine, something happened at the loading dock where some kind of explosion or energy exploded i guess you could say to this lieutenant and that's why she's in a medical need i want to take this moment to really praise the artwork of this comic because this romulan ambassador is someone we've never seen before this is a new character but you can immediately tell that it's mark leonard like it this would be a character played by mark leonard if this were televised which i mean i know the fact that he wrote this is a big giveaway that you know, already has your mind kind of thinking in those terms, but they, they did a really good job of bringing out his likeness here. Yeah. Cause when I saw him and they said he was a Roman, I was like, Oh, is this, cause he looks older. He's got gray, you know? And it's like, Oh, I thought, is this the Romulan commander we saw in Balance of Terror? And I was like, well, wait, no, that can't be cause he passed away, but yeah, it looks a lot like Mark Leonard. So, mm -hmm. and he's a Romulan. So, mm, I was very interested where this was going. Well, we come to find out that, um, of course, he used to be old friends with Dax, Curzon Dax, because everybody who's old has been friends with, a, with Dax at some point in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> so, then he's talking to this ensign as Dax and this ensign have boarded the station from the runabout and seems to know who she is. By the way, her name is Jamie. We find that out. So, okay, he knows Jamie. But then he goes and he meets with the Bajoran Council, and they're complaining that, you know, the Romans have 
worked with the Cardassians and he says, well, you know, we, we work with anyone that we have business with that shares our interests, whether it's Cardassians, the Bajorans or the Federation. And then we're back on the station with this artifact and we have this ensign and Bashir and Dax working on it. And then we have this Romulan that comes in and uh, who was accompanying the ambassador and he's like, Oh, I'm ill. I don't feel well. And so Bashir puts him in sick bay and scans him and he's having an allergic reaction to the gawk. You know, he's eating the Klingon gawk food, which is unusual for a Romulan. Yeah. I liked how this came out later that, you know, because cause they don't call it out here, but I immediately thought, like, that's weird that a Klingon, or sorry, that a Romulan was eating Klingon food. Like, you know, that's why he's in the infirmary. But later on, Cisco calls it out. He says, that's not behavior characteristic of a Romulan. And I, I, I like that that was kind of an initial clue as to what his original purpose there was. Which does come into play a little later here. Um, but then we go and we see this ambassador and Cisco having a chat. They're sitting down, just you know, chit chatting about stuff. And then this ambassador's like, "Oh, you remind me of one of Starfleet's greatest military commanders, James T. Kirk." And Cisco's like, "Oh, come on!" No, <laughs> Cisco's like, "Well, yeah, it was required reading about Kirk at the academy, but there are vast differences between us." And and uh, so there's little hints of this guy like. I recognize this ensign. Oh, and then, you know, he's talking about, you know, Kirk. He's talking how he's a diplomat, but yet his father was a military commander. And I'm like, hmm, is this the son from uh, the Commander in Balance of Terror? Yeah, and I think initially, like very early on, we we knew there had to be some kind of connection. I, I like this connection. I like that you know, this, he has this tie to the first character that Mark Leonard played in Star Trek. You know, it's, it's kind of this nice connection. Then of course, this, and this ensign will learn has a connection as well. Yes. Yes, she does. <laughs> so anyway, um, Janek is back in his quarters or something. And that Romulan that was sick in sick bay comes back and he's like, Oh, I'm back. And he's like, enter my aid and report. He's like, yeah, when I was in the in sick bay, yeah, there's this weird object, and I think it's a new life form. And the ambassador, like, hmm, that's interesting. And he's like, who's studying it? And his officer says it was Dax and Bashir and Ensign Jamie Samantha. And the ambassador ends it with Kirk. Yes, Ensign Jamie Samantha Kirk. Obviously, she's related to James T. Kirk, right, Dan? Absolutely, for sure. I like that this is something that different writers over the years have played with. And, you know, it, it's a little bit like, oh, gosh, you know, there are descendants of Kirk and it's always a big reveal. I think the Star Trek Prometheus novels, for example, um, I, I was actually just while we were going through this comic searching through uh, memory beta to see, and it was uh, Lieutenant Commander Jenna Winona Kirk. So oh. we, we can't quite make them the same person, unfortunately. But maybe but they're sisters. Could be. Yeah. Maybe there's more Kirk. Maybe there's a whole ship of Kirks out there that we don't even know about. I just want to know how these Kirks even started. <laughs> like, <laughs> who was James T. Kirk, you know, with that had a kid that had a kid and all that, you know? Well, I know that uh, for the Prometheus character, she's a descendant of Kirk's uh, nephew. 
um, Peter Kirk. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So in this case, I think they just say that Kirk, James Kirk is an ancestor. So they don't really say how. So I'm assuming because the only son that we know of, the only offspring we know of was David Marcus, who was killed presumably before he had any children of his own as well, because we never hear about that or see that. So I'm thinking it's, you know, Kirk's nephew, that's probably he he was very prolific, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> or we just haven't read anything yet that Kirk has had many children throughout the galaxy. It could be. I mean, there could be a long lost wife. I mean, Antonia was introduced in the very last <laughs> appearance of Kirk. So, you know, <laughs> Spock got a sister after 50 years. So, you know, Kirk could have had another wife that we just never knew about. <laughs> yeah. You never know. It's an odd galaxy out there for sure. So, uh, okay. So let's go forward. And then we have the ambassador in his quarters and Oda was there as like this vase. Then he slithers away and goes to see Cork and he's like, Cork, what are you up to? And Cork's like, I'm not doing anything. And he's like, you're working to get this artifact with the Romulans. He's like, no, I found out from the Bajorns. Bajorns are interested in this artifact. What? Yes. And then all of a sudden there's a red alert going on. There's a security breach going on. And Odo shows up to sick bay to the infirmary. And there is a dead officer outside of there. And they think, Oh, the killer is inside. And we do see somebody getting, you know, electrocuted and <laughs> for lack of a better word from this artifact, but then gets away and they don't know who this killer is, but someone, someone is interested in this artifact. And we think it is one of someone of Bajor, because then we also find one of the Romulans killed in his quarters. Yeah. And, and this part of the story to me follows a fairly straightforward, you know, who done it, who's the real, what's going on kind of thing. Nothing really outstanding here other than like these characters, the characters I'm enjoying. The story itself is kind of familiar, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, familiar. Yeah, I, I would go with that. And Cisco's talking to Kira, and she's like, yeah, I think it might be some Bajorans maybe involved in this, because anything that's coming through the wormhole could be very sacred to them. So this artifact is probably of some importance to some uh, Bajorans. And then we're in Quarks, and we have Ensign Kirk there having a drink, and then the ambassador sits down with her, and he starts telling her, oh, we have so much in common. And she's like, well, this is my She's like, this is my first deep space assignment. And no, she doesn't talk like that. Or maybe she does. But anyway, <laughs> so we're getting more hints like he knows who she is. She doesn't know who he is. You know what's going on. But anyway, they go with the artifact. It's Bashir, Dax, and Ensign Kirk. They get on another runabout and they're going to examine the artifact. But there's these Bajorans that are hidden inside and they take over the runabout take them to Bajor and then Cisco and crew decide they have to go and save them. They take the ambassador with them and they find that the artifact is with these Bajoran religious people. And it's very much Raiders of the Lost Ark at the end. She's praying over it and they're like avert your eyes and don't look. And then the artifact kind of takes them over and then boom, she's dead. The Bajoran. (laughs) So yeah. Okay. This whole ending, (laughs) 
it's revealed that what is inside the artifact is Aelborn. And if you don't know that name, he's the Organian from Errand of Mercy, the one that like is kind of the leader and creates the peace, the ceasefire between the Federation and the Klingons in that episode. I don't know. I was, did you, this was like the last minute, like last two page <laughs> edition. And I'm going like, that's pretty big. Like, that's weird that that's just the very tail end of this story. Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't, well, for, I'm not even sure if he killed the Bajoran or not. I mean, we're not, that's never really specified for sure. But, but then I was like, but why would he and, mm-hmm. or knock her out or whatever? Like, I don't understand. Why was he just like hiding in this artifact and then just decides to reveal himself at this moment? Yeah. And then just like, okay, that's, that's all I had to do. See yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. And he said that all his people are gone because they, you know, expended all their energies in creating peace and he's all that's left. And he's here just to make sure that the Romulans and the Federation are along the same path. And of course, then the ambassador goes to Ensign Kirk, Jamie Kirk, and says, join me and be my liaison and officer with the Federation. And that's pretty much where it ends. Mm-hmm. That last little bit with with the Romulan and, and Kirk, like that, I like. Like, I think that's a nice little touchstone. And then, of course, the reference to Spock at the very end, who is, of course, on Romulus trying to do unification between the Vulcans and Romulans. Uh, when the ambassador says, an old family friend awaiting you is glad you joined our cause. Like, yes. I, I like that. I would have liked more of that kind of spread through the story rather than this weird, like, who's trying to steal the artifact? And then in the end, like, it doesn't matter. Like, it could have been a group of Bajorans on that. At the end, it could have been a group of anybody. Like, it just, she gets tossed aside because it does <laughs> not matter. <laughs> No, but I, but I mean, I thought it was good. I thought it was fun. Yeah, but I did enjoy it as well. I should say I, I did enjoy the story. It was fun to see, you know, this this brainchild of Mark Leonard and, and, and his story here. It was fun. It was interesting. I like this character. It's a character that I kind of wish we saw at some point. Yeah. You know, but uh, yeah, it was it was not bad. <laughs> Agreed. So let's go on to our listener feedback on Facebook. And our first comment comes from Justin Ozer, who says he's excited that we'll be covering the Mark Leonard written comic Blood and Honor on the next episode. Well, there you go, Justin. Happy birthday, even though I know it's not your birthday, but it's kind of right now. So it's an early birthday present or maybe a late one, depending when your birthday was. I don't remember. Uh, and then, Justin, you said you also Took mentioned... on a journey there, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> and then Justin says you also mentioned the animated series logbooks that Alan Dean Foster wrote. Would love to see those covered, as I love TAS, and I've been interested in reading those for a long time. You know, Dan, I have to say, I don't know when, but I think at some point we should dedicate an episode a feature just to those books i'm not saying we have to read them all because that would take way too long but just like how those books became in development the history of them and blah 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 i i'm behind that idea i i like that i think that would be an interesting topic for sure yeah and then justice's later comment he says great discussion on the first string theory novel like you i really like the minorans i thought 
how they were described, their history, culture, and society were fascinating. However, I did have some issues with the novel. The Voyager characters often felt out of character to me. Even before some of them started acting differently, I thought they were written as too hostile and excitable. I was also often confused about what was going on and why something was happening the way it was. I know this is part of a trilogy, but the lack of clarity for me on plot points was very distracting. I think this is one of the few times my rating will be lower than yours. I gave this novel five out of 10 bag-shaped areas of space that can be difficult to visualize, but that our intrepid Voyager crew was always going to find their way out of. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. You know, it just, I will say this. I have read other comments about this novel where people have said the characterizations were a little off. And I don't remember if we said this on the show, but I, I don't know if you told me this, Dan, before the show or during the show or whatever, but something about Jeffrey Lang was not that familiar with Voyager when he wrote this book. Hmm. I, or maybe I, I read that somewhere that he, he wasn't like a big watcher of the series at this point. That may be. And, and it's interesting, this, this comment from Justin, because I'm, I'm finding a lot of agreement in myself with it, uh, especially after having read the subject of this week's feature, book two by Kirsten Beyer, who I think has a really great handle on the characters. And I think that to me kind of magnified the out of character bits in the last book for me that I hadn't really noticed as much when I, when I read it last week, so, or two weeks ago. So yeah, I I definitely think there are some issues there. And uh, for me in particular, I remember thinking the doctor really didn't come across as the doctor, especially again, reading this week's novel, which we'll get to in the future. I, I felt the characters were really on point. It's funny because I remember reading the book and it was Balana for me. Uh, Mm. in the beginning of the book she seemed a little more hostile than usual but then earlier this week i was watching the caretaker of course the pilot episode of voyager and i was like well actually she's reminded me a lot of this episode (laughs) like she's a little more hostile than usual too she has her moments that's the way i look at it (laughs) balana torres she has her moments i think that's (laughs) that's just the good tagline for the character (laughs) yep Well, Peter A. Kerstetter says, I just finished this book and I've downloaded book two, but haven't started it yet. I'm excited that this is the first literary treks I can listen to. Well, that's awesome. I love when our listeners are in sync and I'm I'm loving that there's a, there's an episode that you'll be able to kind of listen to our thoughts and, and hear about what we think at the same time that you've just read the novel. So that's cool. That's always the best way I think to listen to these podcasts. Yes, I agree. Patrick Carlin says, with the reference to Generations, the star date of Caretaker was 48315, while Generations was 48632. So, that being said, Caretaker takes place before Generations. It does. Yeah, and there is a significant reference to the events, of course, of generations in that novel that the Voyager crew technically should not have known anything about. So that was a really good catch. I hadn't caught that. Yeah. About trilithium, but who knows, you know, uh, maybe we knew about trilithium before both of these episodes and movies or whatever. Yeah. But in the novel, they do say Dr. Soren destroyed the Viridian or destroyed the star, the Amagosa star with trilithium. And that's how they know. So So generations got their star date wrong. 
That must be it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because I never even really thought about it. I always assumed also that Generations took place before Voyager because the movie came out before the series. I thought so too, yeah. But uh, that's interesting, the star dates there. Uh, it, it has to do with the relativistic effects of warp speed travel and the effect on local daylight savings time in various parts of the Federation. So yeah. I was going to say that, but you took my thunder. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gail Stoles says, so I liked this novel pretty much, which surprised me a bit as when this series first came out in 05, I wasn't that interested. Oh, well. Again, I, that's another thing that I love about doing these novels on the podcast is we get to revisit some of these that, you know, maybe we wouldn't look at if it weren't for, you know, having to do them for the podcast and, you know, having other people talk about it. It's kind of created this neat community and we can go back and look at these older books that we might not necessarily pay attention to anymore. Yeah, I mean, my goal has always been to read all the books. I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but... Uh, yeah, I didn't read these when they came out. And thankfully, because we do this show, it gets me to read more books that I haven't read. It keeps me more disciplined, keeping the pace going. So I really appreciate that on um, being on the show. So thank you to all of you who put me here. <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> so that being said, uh, let's go into the feature and review that second book in the String Theory series. Okay, so we're going to start this feature out by saying that we're probably going to be jumping into spoilers very, very early, if not here at the beginning. Because when we do a trilogy of books like this, usually book two starts off with spoilers from book one. So I'm just going to put it out there right now. If you're not wanting to be spoiled about this book, I would suggest then not listening now, read the book, and then come back later. And then you can enjoy the whole freaking feature of this glorious analysis that we're going to give this i shot jr sorry i i thought we were getting into spoilers my my bad <laughs> i don't know i just like woke up from a dream i was in the shower um, <laughs> so, <laughs> okay so when we last left our characters in book one tuvok was missing and the singular, a new singularity appears, this you know, micro singularity. So that's where we left off. And now we're in this book and we find out that Tuvok is actually cruising around the galaxy in his shuttle listening to music. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I would put it exactly that way, but I like the image you've created. I, I feel like <laughs> he's also got a really cool pair of shades on, kind of like Commodore O's. But, you know, we won't go there because that's a whole thing. I don't know. It's something about Vulcans and Romulans wearing shades. That's the thing now. But no, he's in a shuttle because he's heading towards the singularity because he's hearing music in his head telepathically. And he doesn't know what's doing that, what it's bringing him to. But eventually, as he's approaching the singularity, he's bringing his shuttle into, uh, he finds the array that's there and he's coming towards that. But then at some point, a spore is implanted into his mouth, which is pretty gross. And he starts to begin the process of becoming one with the spore life form. So, Dan, let me just stop right there and just ask you, what did you think at this point? So we should probably say that the reason that this happens is there's, uh, there's a large explosion and Tuvok is mangled almost to the point of like, 
complete death just about and this life form is supposedly kind of saving him it seems at this point i i didn't really know a lot about what was going on because there's so much kind of happening in his head and then in reality as well so he he gets to the station he's been horribly injured there's like a leg that's been torn to shreds and and he's he's not in good shape and he feels like he's being carried down the hallway towards where this is going to happen and he like can't see the people there who are carrying him but he can feel their hands on his back or something there's a kind of a lot of like in the last book in this book a lot of stuff that's like i'm not exactly sure what's happening right now but i'm sure it will be explained at some point (laughs) yeah and i think that's one of the things that i dislike about this book i do like the book but um there's times I'm just confused. It's like the first book. A lot of the series I find to be a bit confusing. And I remember this part with Tuvok was confusing because I wasn't exactly sure what was going on. Um, but yeah, we, we can, do find out later in the book. So that helps to clear some things up. So then we have the array and that he's on. And since the collapse of the white dwarf known as the blue eye, Voyager discovers a rapidly growing micro singularity and then this array. And this array can manufacture and store every single element in the known universe. It's, I mean, you can dock any ship in there and it even knows how to repair it. And it can support multiple species. It can create the environment for it to breathe in. And it's very huge and it's, got like two different parts of it and spokes coming out of it. And it's protected from the radiation, I guess you could say from the singularity. And it's built from some alien entities that we know nothing about. It's been there for centuries. And it's a very interesting concept because at one point uh, Voyager does go to the array and docks into it. So it's got to be really large if it can hold uh, the Voyager starship into it. Yeah, a couple things with regards to this array. So first of all, the when Seven of Nine is talking to Janeway and saying like, oh, it catalogs every single element and convert all of them into energy and its docking bays can hold every single type of um, vessel. It can produce every single type of atmosphere in the universe part of my brain is going like how do you know that like how how have you been able to catalog all of that to like verify (laughs) when you say like it can do every single but anyway that's kind of beside the point she's smart (laughs) i guess so um i i just mean on a on a time basis like have, have you checked every single anyway it doesn't matter um but the other thing i notice is very early on they're calling it an array and, you know, where have we heard that term used before? And my mind's immediately going to Caretaker, you know, the pilot episode of Voyager where we have the Caretaker's array. And then later on, we meet another one, a smaller array, Suspiria's array. And my brain is like, oh, why are they using that word? That's interesting. So, you know, we'll get to it. This book does have a link to that story of the caretaker and the Nacine, the the species that the caretaker is. But even way before that's revealed, very early on, my brain's already kind of clicked to that because 
they're they're using the the word array which is usually not used outside of the caretaker thing usually it's a space station or something like that so i thought that was a very interesting deliberate choice early on here and you're probably not surprised that before the feature here in the show i mentioned that i just recently watched the caretaker and this is why because after i read the novel i was like i feel like watching it now (laughs) i kind of wanted to watch cold fire which was i watched that too (laughs) oh you did as well okay that's cool i was wondering if you would do that i i did not watch either of them unfortunately but uh hey how was uh gary graham as his non-soval star trek character (laughs) i know that kind of threw me for a second (laughs) it was weird yeah, so I think it's interesting that they did call it the array at this point. And you're right, it's kind of a clue as to, you know, from the caretaker, for example. But yeah, that plays in to this, of course, later on. Now, there's a prologue to the novel, and it's the Morahan and the, of the 14th tribe where they left their home world 50 years ago on a ship, which we learned in the previous novel. And they are looking for the city of Grimadia. And the city for the final battle is between the all-knowing light and the others. That's what's going on in the city. That's what they're looking for. But instead, as they're traveling to the, quote, the city, they are insulted by parasites. And in a sense, the array is the city. Or so we think maybe it's alluded to it could be, but I'm not really sure it really is. Because it's kind of like folklore about uh, their history. So Acilia, who we're learning the story from the prologue and then later in the book, she's the leader of the tribe and she protects herself because as her crew and her people are getting attacked by these parasites, she thinks that they are dying. So she then saves herself because, you know, these beings are very telepathic that then she's able to integrate herself and transfer her consciousness into the organic circuitry of the ship which I thought was really interesting because later in the book, we have Voyager on that ship. We have Balana and Seven and they're interacting with the ship and it's really the Cecilia person. Which is, yeah, something that I kind of hadn't thought of uh, later on in the novel as we're learning kind of the backstory of all this and how this happened. So that that added an interesting element to Seven and Balana's experiences on the ship, which again, like so much in this novel early on is really confusing and you don't know what's going on. And then kind of with the context you get later, you kind of, Oh, okay. I see how that's working and and how that all fit together. I almost wonder if this would have worked better with maybe a little bit of a less linear storytelling, if there was more flashback type stuff rather than just kind of going through it. Because by the time I get to the end of the novel, I'm kind of forgetting some of the stuff that happened at the beginning. And at the beginning, I'm so confused. I don't know what any of it means. Yes, that's how I felt, too. It was so confused at the beginning. And now it's playing out and making more sense towards the end. But then because, yeah, you're confused, it's hard to remember certain things. It's one of those things where, and I didn't have time, where I wanted to go back and reread it Mm -hmm. or skim through it, you know? Yeah, I did not have time either, and I feel like it would have been really beneficial if we could have done that. Yes. Well, let's go to another character in here. You mentioned about the Nacine, which is the species of like the caretaker, for example. And this one shows up on Voyager as the image of Janeway's sister, Phoebe, which I thought was interesting. 
So Janeway walks into her cabin and there is her sister. And <laughs> talk about being confused. Janeway walks in. She's like, Phoebe, what are you doing? Hey, how are you? And they're just having a conversation. I'm like, wait, why is Janeway think Phoebe's like on the ship with her? She's not surprised by this. Well, we've come to find out that the nascent entity is able to go into Janeway's mind and make Janeway thinks that she's always been there. And she does that with all the other crew. She convinces all the crew that the sister of Janeway has been on the ship the whole time since they left the Alpha Quadrant, which I thought was pretty funny. Mm -hmm. I actually really loved that part of the story. I I thought that was really cool how you kind of gradually start to realize oh, all of the crew thinks this is okay and normal. And then it's only after you see that you get the uh, internal thoughts of Phoebe saying like, oh, I've been able to alter the memories of the crew and it seems to be working and blah, blah, blah. I love that. I thought that was a really cool part of the story. How, you know, it, it makes you question like, what are the things that we believe are normal and have always happened? Like, you know, Like, what if something that you take for granted in your day-to-day life actually was not there for 10 years and something just came along and altered your memory and made you think it was and accept it as normal? It's like, oh, that's kind of chilling. I I really liked that. Yeah. I was just trying to think, wouldn't it be interesting to play something like that in a series? Maybe not the whole series, but you go through several episodes and then find out that the character, the news character that's been on the ship for several episodes was never there. I just realized they did that in an episode of Rick and Morty. (laughs) Really? That's cool. It's really good. It's, yeah. To the point where in that particular episode, if I'm remembering correctly, they altered the opening credits to like have these characters in the opening credits, like just in the background with them. That's cool. (laughs) It was really good. (laughs) That's really cool. And yeah, those guys are going to do Lower Decks. That Star makes Trek me really Decks. excited. Yeah. Mike so McMahon. Maybe, oh, maybe, yeah. maybe we'll get something like that in Lower Decks. <laughs> <laughs> that would be cool. Well, and then what I like about this is the whole crew is talking to Phoebe like she's always been there. She's always been part of the crew. And then, of course, we get into sick bay, and the doctor's like, who is this woman? Because, <laughs> you know, she can't <laughs> tap into his memory and alter it. He's a hologram. And everyone's like, it's Phoebe. What's wrong with you, doctor? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> he has no idea who she is. Well, I love also that like even before that happens, Naomi sees her and just starts screaming because she's unable to alter Naomi's mind for a very cool reason. And uh, Naomi just sees her as this like tentacly Nacine thing like we saw Suspiria in, in Cold Fire. Yeah, she doesn't see her as Phoebe. Yeah, because she can't influence Naomi's mind the same way she does the rest of the crew. And I just like, I'm giddy for how cool the reason that is, is now (laughs) she's so Naomi is half human and half what? Katarian. Katarian. So I thought it was because she was Katarian that she doesn't, she can't sit, but that's not necessarily the case. No. And I, I would ask everyone to cast, cast their minds back to an episode of Voyager called deadlock. Uh, which is actually a really good episode written by Brown and Braga and Voyager encounters a spatial scission. I think it's called. And 
basically Voyager keeps taking on damage and getting damaged and they have to evacuate the bridge and all this stuff. And then we flash to like another version of Voyager where everything is fine. And basically what happens is everyone on that Voyager, that's fine. They end up all sacrificing themselves. Um, but on the damaged Voyager, Naomi Wildman and Harry Kim both died. So before the other Voyager sacrifices themselves, they send Harry Kim and Naomi, who's a newborn. She's born in that episode. Uh, they send them through this uh, fracture to that Voyager. So Harry Kim and Naomi Wildman aren't really from our reality. They're from this alternate Voyager that was created there. So they don't resonate on the same phase frequency or something yeah. like that. I thought Basically, it was very clever. Yeah, I loved it. I loved bringing in that episode and, and making that a a part of the whole narrative here. Even to the point where like Janeway brings it up to Harry Kim and like he can't really remember and he's like, oh yeah, right. Yeah. I forgot how uncomfortable I felt not being from this reality for a week or so <laughs> and then got over it. <laughs> well, because Janeway starts to figure out after a while that her sister really wasn't there. Like, wait, why am I, why am I think like there's strange thoughts in her head. Like, why do I think my sister's been here? There's some doubt and stuff. She starts to put two and two together and she, you know, talks to the doctor and then she realizes, okay, I think something has been altering our minds. So she seeks out Harry for that reason mm -hmm. and says, Harry, has my sister been on the ship? He's like, no <laughs> and that's when it's like oh now we know why harry and naomi don't see her as phoebe i thought that was really good that was interesting yeah i loved that and you also mentioned of course the doctor i thought it was cool how you know in that instant that phoebe realizes oh the doctor's different i can't alter his mind but like in that split second she deactivates the doctor and then yes. brings up a like backup copy from early on to take yeah. his place <laughs> it's like it's like the early doctor from uh for the first episode mm -hmm. backup copy it's a please state the nature of the medical emergency and he does it's like he's starting all over again yeah and he doesn't know they're in the delta quadrant he doesn't know that half the crew is from the maquis ship all these all these things there's a half board crew member that he's like well that's weird we should get ourselves back to federation space immediately <laughs> <laughs> and therefore because he doesn't know all these people he wouldn't know phoebe janeway so mm -hmm. she can't be called out as exactly who's not yeah. supposed to be there so yeah really good i love that part of the storyline okay so now let's go back to tuvok as we last mentioned he's on the array he was dying or he was critically injured and he's got the spore that's really bringing him back to life in a sense, but also merging with him. It's creating a new life form. And when Voyager arrives in the array, they go searching out for Tuvok. They get Tuvok, bring him to sick bay. We're able to then switch back to our original doctor at one point <laughs> during this whole process. And he's because the original doctor that is the backup copy says, oh, there's nothing I can do for him. He's going to die. And he's like giving up. And I think it was Belana. No, it was seven that was able to get the new the original doctor back and start working on to on Tuvok. And as he's working on Tuvok to try to save his life, Tuvok doesn't want him to. And Tuvok being the security 
officer was able to deactivate the doctor. He had a certain code where he could deactivate the doctor and the doctor not come back because he didn't want the doctor to save him life. He wanted to die. He wants to achieve Kolachan, which is Itik. Yeah, because these these parasites, these spores, are actually kind of combining with the people they infect and kind of I don't know, making them at peace with the universe at one with the, like, it's kind of, there's a little bit of like a Nirvana type vibe going on here. This was a little confusing to me. I mean, it's what you're saying, the becoming one, all that made sense to me, but I just didn't really understand why. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of, I think they were kind of linking it to like a greater understanding of the universe. Uh, for example, like right now I'm, I'm, watching stargate and at one point one of the main characters dies and becomes ascended uh and then i guess the contract negotiations worked out and they come back a year later but (laughs) you know there it's it's kind of like a higher form of life or something like that it kind of made me think of uh you know like the like wesley becoming a traveler or kess doing what she did in her episode. It felt like a a next step kind of thing that Tuvok was very much attracted to because it gave him greater understanding of logic and emotion and all that stuff. Well, there earlier, there was a telepathic link with Vork who was in sick Bay and and Vork's able to explain that Tuvok's body is dying, but his Katra will live and it will survive. And he's going to achieve you know, all these answers in the universe is logic. And then Tuvok later is able to talk and he expresses that same desire that this is what he's always looked to try to achieve. And now he's going to get that. So there's a conversation he later has with captain Janeway and he's basically pleading with her, just allow this to happen. I want this to happen. And she understood and she let him go. And she said, you know, that this is what you want. I understand this is what you've always wanted and now you can achieve it. And she said goodbye to Tuvok as if we were never going to see him again. Yeah. I found Tuvok's whole thing in this story to be kind of heartbreaking because like, obviously this is what he wants and we know he's not going to achieve it because he goes on in the rest of Voyager. And we see that play out in this novel that other character that we talked about, the one Minoran who hadn't, Uh, been taken over by these parasites the one who downloaded herself into the ship's computer um acelia basically she's been interacting with the voyager crew because they've managed to get her consciousness into a holographic body to be able to talk with her and find out you know what things are going on from her perspective and there's a great scene between her and Tuvok where Tuvok is kind of channeling the essences of the other Minorans who had crossed over, who had become one with these spores and proves to her basically that they are all still alive. And there's one in particular who means a great deal to her that kind of speaks through Tuvok and that helps her to realize the truth that all of her countrymen aren't dead. They're existing in this other state. And Tuvok basically sacrifices his opportunity to become this higher life form or whatever in order to kind of pass that spore from him to her so that it can merge with her consciousness now that it's like fully grown thanks to being 
a part of Tuvok's body. It doesn't need her body because she doesn't have one. It just uses her consciousness and they become this blended life form. And Tuvok doesn't get to do this thing that he was yearning to do. And I'm kind of really hoping there's more fallout from this in the next book because you know, it, it, it seems heartbreaking and I know with Tuvok, he'll never let it show. So right. maybe there won't be fallout that we see from this, but you know, I wish there was a little bit more exploration of what that meant to him and what that meant to give that up because I was just like, wow, that's amazing. I can't believe he sacrificed that opportunity in order to allow her to join her people. That was brilliant. That whole journey of Tuvok in this book was interesting to me, but this was the ultimate play for that journey because it was like he's trying to achieve this ultimate knowledge that he can get from being merged with the spore being. And of course, we all know he's not going to die. It's not going to happen because we get Tuvok later in the series and such. But then given that sacrifice, like you're saying, was really interesting to me. And just the fact that she thought all her people were dead and they're there on the array. They're just in that same situation that Tuvok's in. And this has been gone for 50 years where she's trying to put a distress signal out to people to not come to the array, that it's dangerous. And of course, that message wasn't getting through correctly. And that's why Voyager got to the array. They didn't get that message, the full message to know not to board. But, you know, she thought that, you know, they've all been killed. So at the same time, she's finding her people alive and now she gets to merge with them through the same uh, process of being merged with the spore. And Tuvok gives that to her. I thought that was a brilliant scene. Yeah, it was really beautiful. Like, and and again, it's just, it's so Tuvok that, you know, it's it's understated. There's, there's an episode of Voyager called Muse where it's this playwright on this planet is telling the story of the Voyager Eternals. And I feel like he has the best description of Tuvok. And he basically, the actor can't get their head around trying to act emotionless, you know? And he's like, are you crying? He's like, Vulcans do not cry. He said, I don't understand this character. And he says, Tuvok is someone who, will have this placid look on his face, but inside his heart is breaking, but he can never let that show because that is what it means to be Vulcan. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that is perfect. Yes. And like, I feel like even though this is a novel, it's non-canon, this never actually happened according to canon, like looking at Tuvok and knowing that he's capable of this self-sacrifice and still maintain that stoic face. I'm just like, ah, what a great character. No, I'm with you on that. I think that storyline and the Phoebe storyline are some of the best ones in here. So then we find out the true nature of the key of Gramadia and the life forms aboard the array are now revealed to us. Janeway opens a doorway. Minorans enter that doorway and it's leading them to Exosia. Now, this is interesting because this is also leading us as the readers into book three. Mm-hmm. But this is almost like th- that key to Gramadia is really taking them to where their destination really was for the Manahans. But at the same time, this is where the Nacine 
came from or trying to get to themselves, that the spores were really supposed to be there for the nascenes to merge with, but it ended up being the Monorans that merged mm-hmm. with them instead. I thought that was interesting too. Yeah. And, and this is kind of the part where I'm a little unclear about. So the Nacine were waiting for others to come so that they could join with the spores and go into Exosia, but the Minorans kind of beat them to it, I guess. So they're kind of just That's stuck how there. I took it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, and the, and the Nacines that we know from the Voyager series that we talked about earlier are part of this group. They just happened to be somewhere else. They weren't here because they were you know, helping the, the Acampas. Right. And so Phoebe, who is one of these Nacine, did want Janeway to open the doorway, just not at this time. The yes, because Janeway's the only, way who can op- only one who can open the doorway because the key was basically passed to her she's the only one and when she grabs hold of it her hands stick to it like it's a magnet and the key is made up of like hundreds of dead nascene basically yeah Yeah. so there's a lot going on like there's a lot of really strange plot things that are kind of hard to get my head around what i'm really connecting to in this story even at this part are the characters yes so I feel like Kirsten Beyer just has such a strong grasp of who these characters are. And like, there are all kinds of things in this novel. So there's the strength that Janeway has at this pivotal moment. There's the obvious attraction between her and Chakotay that gets played on a few times that, you know, JC shippers will absolutely love in this novel. There's the doctor. I think, I, I think, portraying the doctor as he is now versus how he was when he was first activated is kind of a fine line. And it requires somebody who knows these characters really well to be able to do that well. And, uh, you know, even Chakotay and Harry Kim, who during the series I felt were kind of like Meh, characters, I think the hints are here that Kirsten Beyer really gets how to make these characters compelling And so even though I'm reading this part and maybe getting a little lost on some issues and and things like that and kind of trying to piece together exactly what's happening, I'm still really connecting to the characters throughout all of this. Absolutely. I'm with you on that. I really do connect with the characters, and I think that's what really sells me when Kirsten Beyer writes Voyager novels, is she does so well with the characters, even to the point, like you're saying, that characters that you thought were okay in the series are even better in her novels. She just Mm -hmm. really nails it. I think that's her biggest strength, for sure. Absolutely. I I really enjoy that. Um, So let's go ahead and go to this cliffhanger ending because i don't think there's a lot we have to talk about exosia because it's i think something we're really going to start to understand better and explained more in book three that's where this is really leaning us so harry kim and tom paris are now missing and i was going to mention this earlier in the feature but i decided to wait till now because what we found out in the array is there's this transporter type system where Mm -hmm. it can transport you anywhere there on the array and maybe even beyond and it beams you to your destination based on what you're thinking 
And they thought this may be an opportunity for them to get back to the Alpha Quadrant. They can use the array and think about home. Almost sounds very Wizard of Oz, you know, just click your heels a few times. (laughs) And there's no place like home. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're testing this out and they're on the shuttle and they're missing. They're gone. And of course, that's a cliffhanger that we're going into with book three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and this is something that uh, they don't know where they are at all. Like, there's no, they haven't been thrown like an unimaginable distance that they just like can't get there. They don't know where they are. So they were in a shuttlecraft and they were testing this system that they had been doing successive tests and they'd been successful with different probes and stuff. But they disappeared, and then the system melted, <laughs> basically. Yeah. So, yeah, they're just totally gone, apparently. And I'm assuming, of course, we'll find them in book three. We, we see them at the very end of the novel, right? And they're, they're like, or the, is there a doorway or something? I can't remember. I can't remember. It sounds right, but I can barely remember. <laughs> that's bad we should anyway yeah <laughs> oh well well and then you mentioned also here in the notes that the doctor we think in is an exosia yeah and i was kind of unclear on how he got there i am too <laughs> there was they they said something about the it sucked up all the fo- anything with a photo that used photonic energy yeah was like turned off or, or it took the energy from it so like all the lights went out and all the holograms and everything went out and then they came back except the doctor the doctor stayed <laughs> wherever it sucked him yeah and apparently thought, at the end it seems like they're implying that that's exosia that he is in now yeah that's that's how well, how i took it too and he's on the cover of book three yeah, so again, Tuvok went missing at the end of book one, and then we get his story. <laughs> the Doctor goes missing at the end of book two, and, and now we're going to find out what happened to him, I guess. So. Well, and Harry Kim and Tom Paris are missing too, so they should be on the cover. And this is when Harry Kim's like, oh, see again, I'm being shortchanged. Why is it always me? The Doctor doesn't even have a rank, and he still, you know, gets top billing over <laughs> Harry Kim. The Doctor doesn't even have an official name. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. So at this point, yeah, I mean, I think we just say what we think our ratings are of this, Stan. So where do you stand? Yeah, I I enjoyed this one for the most part. I think, like I said, it was the characters that I really connected to. It kind of reminded me of how good Kirsten Beyer is at writing these characters and making them compelling. And maybe I'm being too harsh on Voyager, but I mean it when I say making them compelling because... A lot of times in the show, a lot of these characters weren't that compelling to me. So, you know, I really do appreciate what Kirsten Beyer does here. And I I really connected to them here. I loved the stuff with Phoebe Janeway. I thought that was really fascinating. More so when she was maintaining the uh, the ruse rather than when she was out as an A-scene. Yeah, I agree. I, I thought that was really interesting. And... Uh, Little things like the things with Naomi and Neelix, like all the just little character interactions, little character notes that I absolutely love. So 
the story may be a little confusing. I kind of mostly followed what's going on. I get where the peril is. I get who the kind of good guys and bad guys seem to be and all that stuff. So I'm generally following, but what I'm really connecting to is the characters. So for that reason, I think I would have to give this one uh, four out of five piles of discarded worm spore things, which is really <laughs> weird. <laughs> <laughs> that is weird. Yes. Um yeah, I my gosh, I this really confuses me. There's a part of me that says four and a half out of five, because like you're saying the characters are spot on. I think there's so much going on here that's really interesting, but at the same time, I'm a bit confused. I'm having a hard time even talking through this book because it's so there's so much depth and it's so dense with all the stuff that confuses me in some ways. And it's just like, I don't even know where to take it, but at the same time I find it really interesting. So I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put this one at 4.25 keys to Grimadia that, you know, you, you're almost at Grimadia. The key almost works, but there's a part of it that's just not working quite right. It doesn't open mm. the door the whole way. So the doors only open about 4.25 out of five on, on it. Yeah. Something like that. Meh. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> no. And I mean, as much as it pains me to say it, like I give this one four out of five and it almost retroactively makes the last book a three out of five to me. I gave it four out of five in that episode, but like reading this one, I feel like it kind of adjusts that one back a little bit. And I hate to say that because I did enjoy it as well, but it's like reading this one reminded me, oh, this is how good these characters can be written. I can see that, makes that sense. but it does not lower book one for me. It Book one and book two, I think, play really well. I guess my interest and my confusion is about equal between them, but I do think I like the character moments a little more in this one than that one. But that's why I would give it a little edge up. But the, mm -hmm. to me, they're fairly similar. Yeah, maybe like a 3.5 and a 4 or something is kind of where I'm at. But yeah. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to see where we land with book three. Because that one's written by Heather Jarman, and I don't know if I've even read a Star Trek book by Heather Jarman. I know I've read one, one of the Mission Gamma novels, I think, from the Deep Space Nine reading. Oh, you're right. Yeah, I'm looking here. She wrote This Gray Spirit, so I have read that one. Right, that was the one that had to mostly do with Char and uh, the Andorians, I believe. Or it had mostly to do with Char, sorry, and and something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's on the cover. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah. And she's written some other things. Um, let's see here. Worlds of Star Trek Deep Space Nine volume one about Andor, which oh, I've okay. never That's read. That's where those. I'm getting confused then. Okay. Cause that one was all about Andor. Yeah. Well, Char's also in the book she wrote too. So the Deep Space right. Nine novel. So both of them, but I haven't read any of those worlds of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is hmm. interesting. Never gotten to those. Um, she also wrote uh, one of the stories in Distant Shores of the anthology for Star Trek Voyager. She wrote two stories from Starfleet Corps of Engineers. Uh, oh, okay. I, which I haven't read most of those. Read the first few or so. And she did a story in Tales from the Captain's Table, the Officers Club, and Tales of the Dominion War, Mere Eyes, with Jeffrey oh, okay. Lang. So. Hmm. 
So the the captain's table one I would have read, but I don't remember it off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, same. So I'm looking forward to that. So that'll be on our next episode, and then we'll be done with the trilogy, and we can evaluate the whole trilogy as a whole. I'm looking forward to that. It was a lot of fun to be able to go back and see Kirsten Byers start in the, the Star Trek novel arena and, you know, get some context for the books of hers that I love. I absolutely love in the Voyager relaunch. So it was really cool to see her tackle the characters as they were in the series. Yeah, I love reading her first Star Trek Voyager novel. So that was really cool. And how she did, of course, as always, a really great job with it. It just made me wonder how much planning the three authors did together. You know, who came up with the story idea, you know, the whole string theory thing and these aliens in these dimensions and the array and whatever, all these things that are going on. I just wonder how much of that came from her and how much it came from the other two authors that would be interesting to find out someday maybe maybe one of them is listening now and they could just let us know Hmm, that'd be interesting i don't know we'll see but (laughs) it's been fun talking about our favorite authors here today but this isn't the only thing we've been discussing here on the network so let's take a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on trek fm start up the music previously on trek.fm earl gray I guess what I'm seeing is that we're taking some of these later Borg ideas and kind of ret- retconning them back into the best of both worlds. It's stuff that's not necessarily that there. That is exactly what's that's happening cool. because I remember mm-hmm. Picard saying, like in First Contact, I can hear their voices. Hear them. You know, right, but, but that's that a, that's is, a yeah, thing, way right? further than where we are. So, oh my goodness, what our, ma- our mind does. Crazy. Literary Treks. And suddenly now there aren't dozens of movies in the Kelvin universe. So it's not such a critical matter for original novels to be set in that universe to come out. When I was writing The Unsettling Stars, which was not the original title, but that's what we're going to call it because that's what it is. I was very much aware of the two films that J.J. had done. And I purposely wrote a book to do something that would not in any way that I could think of conflict with anything in the first two films. Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. The corona epidemic is shocking. I mean, it's the, you know, we're having some of the most extreme measures being taken in, you know, living memory. I mean, you know, since the Second World War in this country, in many respects, the kind of things people are being asked to do, the level of involvement of the government in people's ordinary lives, totally unprecedented, certainly in, you know, our lifetimes. Um, And frankly, in the lifetimes of most people who are alive, you know, in this world at the moment. So there is that kind of sense that just when you think you're done with history, something happens and sort of reminds you that, (laughs) that everything's not maybe as stable as it seems. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. I don't want them to look like original series Klingons or like Next Generation Klingons or even like uh, Enterprise Klingons. I don't want that. I want them to look just modern. Yeah, you don't need to try to match an aesthetic from 20 to 50 years ago. You really just don't. Don't do Mm. that. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Thank you, Tristan. And check out all these episodes and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you are an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, Spotify, and most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. Or if you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron on the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Find us on a Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section, so you know what is coming up on future shows. Plus, great conversations happening about the books and comics. Just search for Literary Treks and Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Loud, Ken Tripp, Greg Rozier, Brandon Shane Matella, Justin Ozer, Jeffrey Harlan, and Casey Petty for their support of the Trek FM Network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Dan, when you're not beaming around on an array with your mind thinking of where you want to go next, where can people find you? I really don't want to know where an array that can read my thoughts would end up putting me with just the kind of random thoughts that flit through this brain of mine. That's a very dangerous prospect. Uh, you can see some of those thoughts, the ones that I choose to share with the world on Twitter. That's at Kurtrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, where I do videos about Star Trek, including live shows with Bruce and Brandy while we're still getting through this whole COVID-19 crisis on Friday nights. Those are a lot of fun. I hope you can join us. And you can also find me and Bruce on Positively Trek. That's our relatively new podcast uh, that's not on the Trek FM network. It's one we're doing independently, but it's been a lot of fun. We had our first guest a couple of weeks ago and things are chugging along nicely with that. So, uh, yeah, hope you'll join us for that. And Bruce, when you're not cruising around the galaxy in your shuttlecraft, listening to music and wearing some really cool shades, where can we find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You can find me here on the network doing live from the edge with Brandy when new episodes of Discovery come out and everywhere else that Dan said, you can find me with him. And of course, you can find me on the Star Wars Report podcast where I pop up every once in a while talking about that galaxy far, far away. So thanks, everyone, for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.